listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for Episode 24, Grammar Girl Goes Legal. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. As appellate lawyers, we are writers. We study the art of writing. When we get together, we talk about writing and the intricacies of grammar and punctuation. So I decided to have a kindred spirit on the show, Manon Fogarty. Manon is known across the internet as the Grammar Girl and has an award-winning podcast by the same name. My conversation with Manon Fogarty, the Grammar Girl, is coming up next. Manon, thanks so much for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So now I have been a fan of yours for a long time. I, I can't remember exactly how long, but your podcast has been a staple for me for a while. It's it's something that's always in my uh, in my queue to listen to, and so uh, I thank you for that too. Thank you. Well, I love I love to hear that. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now. I mean, the Grammar Girl has sort of become an an empire, right? You've got uh, books and a podcast and YouTube and all that sort of thing, right? Well, I started the Grammar Girl podcast more than 13 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. And at the time, um, it took off and became popular so quickly that I realized I was onto something bigger. And so I founded a podcasting network also called Quick and Dirty Tips. And we have 11 shows today, and I operate that in partnership with Macmillan Publishing. And I, I have to say, they do almost all the work now. <laughs> so I have to give them a lot of credit um, <laughs> for both managing the net podcast network and the website, which is also a big part of the business, because a lot of the the things that we talk about are things that people also search for on the internet. So, you know, I have a podcast about how to use a semicolon, but people also look for that on the web, and and we have information for them there. And then um, I also do a weekly newsletter. I've written seven books about language. The first one was a New York Times bestseller, which was so exciting. That's going in my obituary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just try to be wherever people are um, and need grammar help. So, you know, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and, like you said, YouTube. And I struggle with Instagram a little bit because it's so much more visual than word-oriented, but I'm there. So (laughs) I try to be wherever people might need help. It is amazing, right? Who would have guessed that a grammar book would be a New York Times bestseller, right? (laughs) Right. I know. Well, Eats, Shoots, and Leaves came first, and that was also a mega bestseller. So, um, you know, I think people in publishing, that was why they approached me. So um, right when I first started, maybe six months after I started, the Wall Street Journal picked Grammar Girl as their web pick of the day, and I was contacted by multiple publishers who wanted me to write a book. And I think that they were thinking of the the huge success that had been Eat, Shoots, and Leaves not so many years before that. So there was there was some precedent, but it was still very exciting. Well, I'm so glad that you could come on uh, my show to, to talk a little bit about some grammar issues. You know, my audience of appellate lawyers, we're all professional writers, and while we don't all have a BA in English or anything, you know, we do study uh, the art of writing and particularly persuasive writing. And and I'll say for sure that anybody who cares enough about writing an appellate uh, practice to be listening to my podcast definitely should be listening to your podcast and 
and following you on, on social media because it's there's a definite overlap. Uh, my my audience should be like a small subset of your audience, right? <laughs> right. Writing is essential for what you do. So there are a few issues that come up in our community often, and sometimes there's different answers or at least different takes on some of them. And so I want to ask you about a couple of things that come up a lot and sort of get your get your take on it. They're not you know, legal questions or writing questions, but as they come up in a legal writing environment. Sure. One debate that we have had for a long time is about the Oxford comma, you know, mm-hmm. or what some people would call the serial comma, um, sort of the, you know, the last comma in a series. And, and some people use it and some people don't. And I think for a long time, it was largely seen as a matter of a preference, you know, in our, in our corner of the world. And people who didn't use it would point out, oh, the AP style manual you know, doesn't require it. And, other style manuals would. And and then there was a case in Maine uh, not too long ago where there was an interpretation of a state statute that turned on the absence of an Oxford comma you know, and the ambiguity that it created. And it resulted in a $5 million award. So people were calling it, you know, the $5 million comma. I think I did a podcast about that at the time. I think it was a dairy company, right? Right. That's right. And it had to do with... Uh, overtime or statutory overtime or something like that for the drivers. Um, And and that kind of rippled through the legal community as evidence that, Hey, the Oxford comma is really important. And, you know, and that, and that depends on the context and whether it creates any ambiguity or not. But I'm just curious in, in, you know, in your world, in the academic community, is, is there a lot of debate left over the Oxford comma or is this a settled thing now? <laughs> well, there's always debate, and you have it exactly right that it's a style choice. So um, most style guides call for the Oxford comma, but the AP style book, which is followed by you know a lot of news writers is and PR people, is um, the major style that doesn't require the Oxford comma in all sentences, but even they require it in complex sentences. Um, I prefer to use it in my own writing. And I, when I, um, I was participating in an Associated Press Twitter chat and someone asked me what one rule I would change. And I said, I would, I would change it so that the AP would also require the Oxford comma. And I think it was my most liked tweet ever. (laughs) So people definitely have (laughs) strong opinions. And I do think, you know, it's not necessary all the time for clarity, but it does sometimes add clarity. And I think because legal writing because in legal writing, it's so important that everything be as clear as possible. I believe I would always recommend using the serial comma, the Oxford comma in legal writing. There are some strange sort of, you know, made up sentences that wouldn't occur very often in uh, the real world that can be ambiguous, even with an Oxford comma. So, you know, you have to read your work carefully and make sure even though you're using it, it's clear, it's not automatically clear if you're using it, but I would start from the point of using it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's always been sort of my take on it too, is that I I guess I could look at each sentence and evaluate whether or not the Oxford comma was necessary or added to the clarity, or I could just as a general practice, use it all the time. Right. That's just easier. (laughs) It seems like the easier approach. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I agree. Here's one that we struggle with a little bit too. We, We write a lot about attorney fees. Uh, you know, 
entitlement to attorney's fees and we're proving up attorney's fees and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I see, I see it written three different ways. Some people write attorney's fees with an apostrophe, you know, Y apostrophe S. Some people write it in the plural form with an S and an apostrophe. And some people, and I will admit that I tend to do this to avoid (laughs) having to make any difficult decisions, is they just write attorney fees and Mm -hmm. don't make it possessive. And, you know, as a practical matter, I mean, I get the, 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 the basic grammatical issue as to whether it's, you know, plural or not, but a lot of times we're talking about not a particular attorney's fee, but attorney fees in a more generic reference. You know, a litigant is entitled to recover attorney fees in this matter. It could be one attorney. It could be a bunch of attorneys. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm curious if you have a, have any opinion on, you know, how we, how we should come down on that. Right. Well, when you use attorney without an apostrophe S, you're using it as something like an adjective. It's often called an attributive noun. So um, an ex- another example, you know, golf and golf cart, it tells you what kind of cart you're driving. And, and that's an example of golf being used as an attributive noun, which is kind of like an adjective. And so, you know, some people would think, some people get hung up on the possessive and think, you know, it has to, attorneys would have to be possessive, but it doesn't. It's completely legitimate to just write attorney fees, and I think you're perfectly fine doing that. Um, I, it also, I can see an argument for using attorneys' fees, so having attorneys, plural, and then the apostrophe after it, or apostrophe S, to say attorneys' fees, um, because you do. You don't want to limit it to one attorney. I think if you had attorney apostrophe S, then someone could argue that you've limited it to the fees of just one attorney and that that might be able to cause problems down the line. So either right. using- and we all the, want to get paid, right? <laughs> yeah, right. You want everyone involved to get paid if they're attorney's fees. One of the reasons that I had originally chose uh, to say attorney fees uh, is the Florida Supreme Court at that point was using that term. This was like in the late 90s. And I thought, well, that's that's great. And why not just emulate what they're doing? And then I, I noticed over the years that changed. And the Supreme Court, Florida Supreme Court started using attorney fees, singular possessive, and uh and describing them that way. So it's it's just funny how things change over time and probably the editor at the court changed and to me that's probably the least uh desirable of the configurations but it's just funny how how things work like that change. Gosh, that surprises me a lot that they would use the singular possessive. I agree with you. I think that's the least desirable of all the options. Attorney fees, like it does make a lot of sense to me. It sort of avoids the issue. Again, unless we're talking about a particular attorney's fee, then, then that's a different story. But Right, but that just means the fees of one attorney. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most controversial things that we talk about, I know this seems ridiculous, but you know we're, we're all amongst grammar nerds here, so it won't seem as ridiculous to you as it does to, like, say, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, we argue a lot, uh, and there's a big rift in the appellate community over uh, one space or two uh, after the end of a sent- you know, after the period and the start of a new sentence. And I, I think it depends a lot about how old you are yep. and what you were taught in school. And 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 you know, to the, we actually have hashtags, and there were T-shirts printed at one point that were like hashtag Team One Space, hashtag Team Two Space. <laughs> 
we took it ridiculously serious, but, um, and there does seem to be some conflict in the various style manuals. And then there's a debate over what style manuals are really authoritative for legal writing anyway. So I'm going to ask you with some trepidation now, because <laughs> I'm invested in this too, right? <laughs> what, what is your, what, what, what's your ruling from in your world on one versus two spaces? That's so funny. Well, first I'll tell you that you're not alone because um, on Facebook, the post I had that went the most viral was about how many spaces after a period. <laughs> this is the biggest Facebook post I've ever really? had. So many, many people wow. care about this topic. So um, most modern style guides say to use one space after a period at the end of the sentence. But you're right that it's a style choice and it's changed over time. So when people typed on typewriters, the common rule was to put two spaces after a period. And sometime um, when people switch to computers, it also you know, seem to change to one space. Some people will say that it has to do with um, courier, you know, typewriter fonts being a monospaced font where everything is the same width and computer fonts being or typefaces being um, proportional so that, you know, the I is thinner than the M. For example, um, some people claim that there are other reasons, but, um, and, and so it is, it does matter what the style guide is for your industry. So I'm not, super familiar with what style guide, you know, you would be using in appellate court, but whatever style guide that is should speak to that issue. Um, but if it doesn't, then I would say that you should default to what's the most common modern standard, which is one space after a period. I was afraid you were going to say that because <laughs> I, I Googled some of the things you've written on this. And, you know, I, I, um, I'll have to decide now whether I leave this in the podcast or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you said we're going to talk about fonts later, and it does sort of depend on what font you use. So, um, you know, if the courts if the courts are using a monospaced font like Courier, then you could make a much stronger argument for using two two spaces. No, and and we will talk about that a little bit. And I don't think anybody uses monospaced fonts, although they're technically allowed. Courier is allowed. I don't think anybody realistically uses it or. Yeah. or very small fraction. I, I get the argument that proportional spacing on fonts, you know, it can, uh, you know, reduce uh, that gap that's created by two spaces. But in my mind, it, it doesn't eliminate it. There's still some extra space there. I can, I know because I can see it right when I when I fail to two spaces, put in two spaces. Mm -hmm. I can usually see it. Sometimes the way the words kern, you don't see it, or you know, if there's just uh, if you're doing a full justify, that can affect that too. But, you know, my, my rationale for the two spaces is just that it's all about white space. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a lot of talk these days in the legal community about judges reading um, on screens instead of on paper. How do we increase legibility mm -hmm. and about white space and that sort of thing. And I I just like that, you know, additional space. But I'll tell you what I do um, is a little bit different. Even I'm not a strict two spacer. <laughs> what what I do is um, in legal writing, we use a lot of like inline citations rather than footnotes, mm -hmm. right? So you have the end of a sentence and a period, and then you have a case name a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so what I will do is I will single space between the period at the end of the sentence and the case citation, and then I'll double space after the period that ends the citation before I start a new sentence. So to me, I'm doing two things. I'm sort of tying very subtly, I'll admit, but I'm tying the citation to the sentence that it's, 
that it's referring to and you know making it clear that it's a citation and then that there's a break before the next sentence so that, that's sort of my uh mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my hybrid approach to this hmm. but my response i guess would be that i would think the rules have to be at least cuz i don't think there is a style guide that's dispositive on this issue for attorneys or i would say you know if if i'm making a reasoned decision about what i'm doing um it's it should be my space my decision <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> Nobody would tell E.E. E. Cummings that he had to use capitals or punctuation, right? <laughs> I'm just an artist. <laughs> right. All, all that's in, I, I suppose the most important thing to you would be what the judges think, right? The people who have to read your briefs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And this is a question that comes up all the time. I would imagine, actually. We that, ask judges. I would, yeah. yeah. I would imagine that most judges, because it's such a prominent, you know, position of prominence, would tend to be older. And older people do tend to prefer double spacing more. So because that's what they grew up with, essentially. So maybe you've got, you know, 10 or 20 years before <laughs> before they'll start not liking right. that. <laughs> well, I'll be retired by then, so I won't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> This episode is again sponsored by CSBA, but they've slightly updated their name to reflect their focus on court-related surety bonds. CSBA is now Court Surety Bond Agency, emphasizing the fact that CSBA is the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. CSBA has recently created a new website that is a great resource for appellate attorneys, includes general information on the nuts and bolts of securing an appellate bond with specific forms of collateral, an interactive map with each state's stay and appeal bond requirements, and a list of surety companies certified for use in federal court. Be sure to check it out and bookmark the site in your favorite browser. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Court Surety Bond Agency. They can be reached at courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. My thanks to CSBA for being a longtime sponsor of the Issues on Appeal podcast. Another thing that I see a lot of uh, difference of opinion on, I don't, I think that the rule is probably pretty clear on this, but I'm just curious if you, what you think. Um, we do a lot of quoting of material in legal briefs. And I was always taught, right, that a a period or a comma uh, always goes inside the quotation marks, uh, and other marks do not unless they are a part of the quoted material. That is correct. But I do see a lot of lawyers, yeah, I see a lot of lawyers who put all marks, even periods, outside of the quotes, uh, unless they're part of the quoted material because they think it's more accurate or you know, that they're representing that there's a period there by putting it inside the quotes that they're not. Um, but it just bothers me visually when I look at it just because of, you know, sort of years of, of training. But do you think that there, do you think that's an issue? Do you think there's, there's room for 
uh, stylistic decisions there, or is that, that pretty firm? No, that's a hard and fast rule in American English. The period and the comma always go inside the closing quotation mark. It's different in British English. They have more flexibility about how they do it. They have very complicated rules, actually, about when they go inside and outside that I don't fully understand, and they actually vary from publication to publication. But in American English, it's really straightforward and clear. The period and the comma always go inside the closing quotation mark. And I know there are a lot of people don't like that rule. I, when I post that, I often get a lot of comments. I get people saying, I don't care what the rule is. I don't like it, and I'm not going to do it that way. Like They're very stubborn. <laughs> it's, the, it's the one rule that I get the most pushback on. So, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised that there are people doing it, um, <laughs> you know, the other way. But I will say it is definitely a real rule in American English. I guess we're hitting all the hot buttons, right? These, none, none of these are particular to lawyers. We just uh, we're, we're not immune to the same issues everybody else uh, right. complains about. Yeah. <laughs> what about so? As attorneys, we are often comparing numbers, right, or quantities or probabilities, oh. and so we have a lot of reason to use more than or over. And you know, again, I remember always being taught that you know don't use over. If you mean more than like, you know, don't say there are over five ways to complete this challenge when you mean there's more than five ways. Mm -hmm. But then recently I was reading some stuff that suggested that maybe there's a relaxing of that rule as current thinking changed on that? Yes. So um, the more than versus over distinction is, again, something that was particular to the Associated Press. So it was only the Associated Press that said you shouldn't use over to mean more than. So that came exclusively from the journalism world and, and no other style guide um, addressed the issue or thought it was a problem. And then, oh, it was may hmm. maybe... Maybe five years ago, um, maybe even more recently, but at, at one of their, at one of the American Copy Editor Society meetings where the Associated Press editors announced the updates every year, because they do update the style guide every year, they relaxed their stance on using over to mean more than. So they now said it's fine. If you want to use over to mean more than, you don't have to. If you don't want to, if you were trained for 30 years not to, you don't have to start now, but, <laughs> but they gave people permission to do that if, if they want to. So now there, there's no style guide I'm aware of that says you shouldn't do it anymore. And, and most people always thought it was fine. You know, English is flexible. So, the, you know, some people will argue well, over means above, like physically in space. But English is so much more nuanced and flexible than that. Like words have different meanings and it can mean above your head and it can also mean more than. Words have multiple duties all the time. And they do change over time, right? The more people, even even if it was originally sort of a misuse, which I think we're saying it wasn't, but but it sort of becomes more accepted over time anyway. Right? Yeah. So okay, so it's a it's officially a free for all on more than or over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not particular to legal writing at all, but it's just something that that bothers me when I see it. Uh, it's the distinction between which and that, mm. and. I see this a lot wrong a lot and and part of what it is it's like one of those I know it when I see it you know kind of things and it can be hard I work with associates at the law firm you know uh, younger associates I do some teaching uh and that sort of thing and you know when I was taught about which and that I was told you know if you're using it with a restrictive clause you use that and if you're using it with a non-restrictive clause you use which 
But when you try to explain that to people, their eyes kind of gloss over. Right. Uh, yeah. When you start talking about restrictive clauses, right? And so then somebody somewhere told me, well, the rule I use is if you're using a comma in the sentence, you're, you, you need which. And if you're not using a comma, you use that. And I think that that as a rough rule kind of works as long as you're using the commas correctly. <laughs> right. But I'm curious <laughs> – how how do you explain when when people ask you what what's the best way to explain to people when when is it which and when is it that that's so true you you have it right and so there are a couple different ways I explain it to hopefully help people remember so um, one little memory trick is to think you can throw out the witches and I always think of like Halloween witches but if you can take the witch clause and sort of pick it up by the commas on each side and throw it away and it doesn't change the meaning of your sentence then you know you should use the commas and that you have a witch. So you can throw away the witches, just grab them by the commas, pick them up and throw them out. So you can sort of visually think of that <laughs> and that'll help you remember when to use witch and when to use the commas. Um, and then, the, you know, I some teacher somewhere in my past um, gave me an example that I always find helpful and that's to think about diamonds. So if you say diamonds that are expensive make a great gift, well, that's telling you that only the diamonds that are expensive make a great gift. So diamonds that are expensive make a great gift. Or if you can say, you can say diamonds, which are expensive, make a great gift. Then you're saying that all diamonds are expensive and any diamond would make a great gift. Mm -hmm. So if I'm ever in doubt, I think of those two sentences and try to think of what I mean. Um, so, and it's just a sentence, an example sentence someone used for me probably 40 years ago that helps right. me remember. <laughs> so those two things are, are the, the things that I find are typically helpful to remember when to use which and when to use that without trying to explain restrictive and non-restrictive clauses, which are the right and grammatical ways to explain it, you know, if you're, if you're teaching a grammar class. Right. <laughs> right. But nobody, nobody wants to wrap their head around that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you had mentioned fonts before because I, uh, when we talked briefly before the show, I had asked you if if we could talk about this a little bit, and I'm I'm assuming that you have some opinion about fonts because usually people who are into writing and grammar do because I think something about fonts it, it feels so integral to the written language. I mean, I guess it's not in a way because they're kind of you know you could swap one font for another font and the meanings don't change, but it just feels a little more um, integral than that to me. And right. so, so a lot of times people have strong feelings about fonts. We, right? we spend a lot of time looking at them. Um, <laughs> we do. That's right. Especially lawyers and judges. Right? Judges are some of the most overworked, uh, you know, people as far as having a lot of reading to do. And so this issue has come up in Florida. Um, the appellate court rules uh, require certain fonts for appellate briefs. And the two that have been uh, approved for as long as I can remember are Courier New, which, you know, is the fixed space font that we said nobody really uses anymore, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Times New Roman uh, in a 14-point font, by the way. It's interesting. State court judges tend to prefer a 12-point font mm. for probably for size and you know or for you know a shortness i guess or more compactness and and appellate lawyer or appellate judges prefer a 14 point font which actually you know i kind of like it I, that's what i use <laughs> it felt so big yeah. at first <laughs> it felt so big at first and now it feels so good it's easier on your eyes yeah it definitely is and, and there's a rule change proposed to a to 
swap the two potential fonts that are available to uh, Arial, which is, you know, the old standby sans serif font, um, or uh, Bookman Old Style, hmm. which is a a compact a, a, or a less compact font, but it is a serif font, so it's you know closer to Times New Roman than to to Arial. But um, and there's a lot of personal preference that goes on here and force of habit, and you know, so there's been kind of a mixed reaction from attorneys uh, in the bar. Uh, but the perception is that that these fonts are easier to read and. I'm curious. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I'm not aware of any studies that show that those fonts are easier to read. I do think now Verdana is the one that's supposed to be the easiest to read on a screen, if I remember right. And then there's some fascinating studies about um, which fonts or typefaces are viewed as most credible. So um, I know they did a study that had you know students turn in the same papers but in different fonts, and they got different grades. And I, I know it was the um, the serif fonts that were viewed as more credible or more authoritative. So it's interesting that could have, have interesting effects in the legal world. I never really thought about that before. Um, but I, you know, a font, like you said, fonts are such a thing of personal preference. Like I always work in times new Roman 14 point. And if someone sends me something that isn't in that, I change it before I edit it. Um, and it's not hard to change <laughs> it. So if, you know, lawyers aren't, enjoying writing in whatever the new fonts are, well, they can write in whatever font they prefer and then at the last minute change it to what the courts want. So it's not really that much work to to change it. And, and I did think it was smart of the courts to um, specify word count instead of page length um, for their limits because obviously different um, fonts take up different amounts of space. And so it's much more fair to do it yes. by word count. Um that that was that was great and interesting but but yeah i mean i don't those aren't my favorite fonts that they're changing them to but you know they must be theirs and they're spending so much time reading that i think it's only fair that they get to choose what fonts they're reading in yeah i think it's interesting that like you said uh, the the article that i had sent you about this discussed the fact that you know some lawyers were originally upset because the the Bookman old style is a less compact font. So you get less words on a page. So if you're concerned about getting every bit of argument that you can into a, uh, a page limit, you don't want Bookman <laughs> because you're going to get less words in. So it makes more sense. And the federal courts already, the federal appellate courts have already switched to, instead of counting pages, counting words, which makes a lot more sense for all those reasons. Right. But it's hard to, I do think it's interesting that, Go ahead. I would say it's hard to imagine, you know, professional lawyers behaving like college freshmen trying to switch fonts to fit, fit in as much as they can <laughs> in the page. You know, that's, that's what students do. <laughs> but a lot of times the freshmen are trying to spread things out. I mean, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> try make it longer to meet to meet the limits. But Bookman sixteen. <laughs> the the main difference with the Bookman old style to me is it it's less compact. It seems like there's more space between the letters. You know. It, feels uh looser i guess you know than times new roman and and that's probably what the judges prefer about it because again we're talking about tired readers who are trying to digest a lot of information and maybe that additional you know it's like reading a big print book right it just it maybe it feels easier because it's 
more open and more spacious and that sort of thing. And they do have different feels. Just coincidentally today I saw um, the fiction writer Ellen Hopkins on Twitter say that she um, uses different fonts for different characters in her books. And I thought that was just brilliant because you can imagine that a different character you might feel, especially if you're a creative person, you might feel that different fonts go well with the personalities of different characters in your books. And I thought that was a really interesting and brilliant idea. So, you know, they they definitely do carry some sense of feeling or emotion. They do. And and going back to what you said before, I'm, I'm going to have to look at uh, what you were saying about some fonts being judged more credible than others, because that does make a lot of sense to me, mm-hmm. I think. Especially the idea that a serif font, which is looks a little bit more sophisticated, might carry more weight than than a sans serif font. I, I'll have to look at that. So, I, you know, for lawyers, I guess in a restricted environment like we were in, where you only have two to choose from, basically everybody will be using the same font or same two fonts, I guess. But um, maybe uh, maybe we shouldn't choose the Arial font if. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if it's not going to be deemed as uh, authoritative. Yeah, I, I yeah, you should look into that. It could make a could make a difference. I would imagine. A lot of legal argument is about credibility, mm-hmm. and uh, that's important. Yeah, those subtle influences. Thank you so much uh, for covering some of these things. It's it's very helpful. I'm sure my my listeners are going to love it, and I hope that uh, they will take this opportunity to uh, subscribe to your podcast and follow you on social media and, and keep getting great tips from you. And I, uh, I really appreciate you taking your time to be on the podcast. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Manon. Okay. Bye. Thanks to Manon Fogarty for being on the podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for a particular situation. That being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Your contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment now, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. I hope you'll tune in again in two weeks. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.